This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thank you for joining the program. Now the pure altruistic intention and the supreme thought of enlightenment both refer to bodhicitta, the mind determined to attain enlightenment to best benefit all living beings. And if you were with us over the last few weeks, you may remember that we've been covering the equalizing and exchanging self for others method of generating this mind. This method first uses nine points to equalize oneself with others and then looks at the disadvantages of self-cherishing and the advantages of cherishing others to encourage practitioners to give up self-cherishing and adopt the mind that cherishes others. At the end of last week's program, while looking at the advantages of cherishing others, we heard from His Holiness the Dalai Lama in a quote that runs, Another thing that is quite clear to me is that the moment you think only of yourself, the focus of your whole mind narrows. And because of this narrow focus, uncomfortable things can appear huge and bring you fear and discomfort and a sense of feeling overwhelmed by misery. The moment you think of others with a sense of caring, however, your mind widens. Within that wider angle, your own problems appear to be of no significance, and this makes a big difference. If you have a sense of caring for others, you will manifest a kind of inner strength in spite of your own difficult situations and problems. With this strength, your problems will seem less insignificant and bothersome. By going beyond your own problems and taking care of others, you gain inner strength, self-confidence, courage and a greater sense of calm. This is a clear example of how one's way of thinking can really make a difference. Now those who follow the various antics that go on in America may know that for some time a debate about gay marriage has recently been raging, sometimes quite explosively in that country. The CEO of a company called Chick-fil-A that serves various items of food centered around chicken came out strongly against gay marriage. In the ensuing fracas, it was revealed that the charitable arm of Chick-fil-A, the Winship Foundation, sponsored many organizations with political agendas targeting LGBT rights and activities. Of course, many people were outraged, and recently I came across a video on YouTube of a man called Adam Smith who decided he was going to express his displeasure by going to a drive through Chick-fil-A outlet, ordering a drink of water and giving the person serving him what for about the company's attitude. But not only did he do it, he videoed himself and put the result up on YouTube. The person serving him was a young lady by the name of Rachel. Against his very unpleasant tirade, she kept her cool and responded politely without any obvious desire to retaliate. 
Now, I don't think Adam Smith quite expected the response he got to his YouTube upload. It went viral very quickly, and unfortunately someone found his address and posted it online, and he became the target of such a huge volume of hate mail that he and his family had to go into hiding. In addition, he lost his job in the top management of a medical devices firm. He subsequently apologized, but the most impressive thing to come out of this whole affair was the response of the lady who served him. In a later interview with Fox News, she said, I feel very sorry for everything that has happened to him since Wednesday. And then she said, I was really glad that he made a statement, meaning his apology, because what happened when he came to the drive through wasn't so much about Chick-fil-A, but how one human being should treat another. And she also said, I'm really glad that I can be an example how we should serve each other. Then on the question whether she ever felt inclined to give him back as much as she got, she said, I'm sure he was looking for me to react poorly. It's not in my personality. I would never do anything hateful in return to someone. And finally, she said she forgave him and hoped that America could also forgive him. Of course, as Rachel herself said, she was trained to deal with difficult customers. But it would have been easy and understandable for her to come back at Adam Smith with at least a halfway cutting comment. She didn't, and I think her subsequent interview showed how she maintained some compassion and caring for him. And that made her instantly famous. The former governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee, echoing the general attitude to her when he called her a hero. We could say that social media blows things out of all proportion. Plenty of people throughout the world deal with nasty customers every day. But this seems like a good incident to illustrate His Holiness's point, that it makes a big difference if we can keep about us a sense of compassion and caring for others. But now, before we continue, let's set our motivation for the program as we usually do, thinking, if possible, that it may become the cause for our enlightenment, so we can bring happiness, both temporal and ultimate, to all living beings. Thank you. Now, at the end of the last program, I said that we had completely gone over the benefits of cherishing others, but another statement by His Holiness reminded me that we had in fact not. He said, Some of you may have actually heard the remark, which I make quite often, that in some sense the bodhisattvas, the compassionate practitioners of the Buddhist path, are wisely selfish people, whereas people like ourselves are the foolishly selfish. We think of ourselves and disregard others, and the result is that we always remain unhappy and have a miserable time. The time has come to think more wisely, hasn't it? This is my belief. Of course, what he is referring to is that bodhisattvas, those beings who only work to attain enlightenment to benefit others, have given up self-cherishing. As Tupton Chodron writes, Cherishing others is the source of this bodhisattva motivation, this aspiration for full enlightenment. Without cherishing others, it is impossible to be a bodhisattva. Without being a bodhisattva, it is impossible to attain full enlightenment, full Buddhahood. You have never heard of a Buddha sitting there saying, Oh, these sentient beings, what a pain in the neck they are. I wish they would just leave me alone. They are always praying to me. They want me to do this, they want me to do that, they want help with this, they want help with that. They don't do anything for themselves. They just pray to me and expect me to do everything. Look at it from a Buddha's point of view. It looks like that, doesn't it? 
all these sentient beings, they're too much. They're just sitting here praying, Maya be rich, but they won't have any responsibility for their livelihood. They're praying to be rich, but they won't be generous and create the karmic cause for wealth. They're sitting here praying to have realizations, but they won't sit down and do any meditation. You can really see how a Buddha would get fed up. It would be totally understandable, wouldn't it? Buddha could say, Look, they give me some squash, they give me some flowers, and then they think they can ask anything they want in the world, and I'm supposed to come through. Now, just a caveat here. It is the custom in Tibetan Buddhism to pray a lot to the Buddha's bodhisattvas and deities, but many other Buddhist traditions don't pray, asking for favors from the Buddha. Of course, people with limited understanding of what the Buddha taught might think that making offerings and praying like that will bring them good fortune and what they want. But the Buddha is not a god, and it's quite clear, according to the law of cause and effect, that if you want something to happen, you have to create the causes. Even His Holiness says that the effect of merely making prayers is dubious. In one teaching, he wonders if prayer is effective at all. Anyway, to continue with Tupton Chodron's point, she says, But we never hear of a Buddha getting fed up, do we? Buddhas are just infinitely compassionate, infinitely patient. We keep on being demanding little whimpering children, and Buddhas just keep teaching us and just keep showing us the way, just keep repeating the same teachings over and over again because we still haven't got it yet. We've never heard of a Buddha who's been self-centered. The basic quality of a Buddha is somebody that cherishes others. When we think about it, we really see the importance of cherishing others for our own spiritual practice. She goes on, One way to look at it is, in order to become a Buddha, we have to generate bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is that wish, that aspiration for enlightenment, in order to benefit each and every sentient being. That means that our own enlightenment is dependent upon each and every sentient being. When we look at it that way, we see how important each and every sentient being is, because without that sentient being, we wouldn't be able to cherish them, we wouldn't be able to generate bodhicitta, and we wouldn't be able to fulfill our own spiritual aspirations by becoming Buddhas. When you see that gnat, when you see the beetles on the ground, I was going to say, when you see a dog with mange, but you don't see that here very often. In India, you see so many dogs with mange, skinny, mangy dogs, it's horrible. And when you see any kind of being who makes you cringe, whether it is a government official or a non-government official, whether it's your boss or your ex or whoever it is, your neighbor who dumps their garbage in your yard, switch your thought and realize, I'm dependent upon that being to attain enlightenment. I cannot attain enlightenment without that being. In my own spiritual practice, fulfilling my own spiritual aspirations is dependent upon that grasshopper. I cannot leave that grasshopper out of my compassion, out of my cherishing of others. I cannot leave Osama bin Laden out of my cherishing of others. I am dependent on each and every person. If you think like this, it really helps to start changing the mind and to see the value and the importance of cherishing others. We see that it's important for our long-range spiritual benefit and we see that it's also good for our short-term relationships with other people. If you cherish the people you work with, you're going to get along with them, aren't you? If you cherish them, you will like going to work and they will like having you at work. If you really cherish your friend, family members and don't take them for granted, you're going to have a happy family life. 
if we cherish the other people in society, all the strangers we interact with every day and really want them to be happy, then we will get along with them. She goes on to say that if we don't meditate often on the benefits of cherishing others and the disadvantages of self-cherishing, we may say we want to be altruistic, but we'll act in an opposite way. That is what causes this feeling of guilt and malaise, that my practice isn't going well. Have you had that feeling sometimes, she asks. We know all these teachings about the disadvantages of self-centeredness, advantages of cherishing others, and then we look at our own behavior and what do we do? We cherish our friends and we harm our enemies. We think, well, that's what I do. And here I am a Buddhist practitioner and I'm not gaining any progress in my practice because look how selfish I am. It's all intellectual. Then we start feeling guilty because we're such bad practitioners. Have you gotten to that? It's completely self-defeating. She claims that by not meditating on it again and again, we do not bring what is in our heads down into our hearts. But when we do, something inside transforms. Right now, sometimes it's hard to cherish others, isn't it, she asks. But when we really think of the benefits of doing it, it becomes easy. Now this is typical of Tibetan Buddhism teachings, kind of implying that if you don't meditate often on cherishing others, you tend to just cherish yourself. But I think the situation is more complex. In an article in Psychology Today, Alfie Kern, lecturer and author of 13 books and numerous articles on human behavior, education and parenting, writes on pro-social behavior. He starts the article off with three examples. One, leaving your wallet on the bus, but somebody finds it and returns it. Two, a toddler starts crying and his playmate fetches a security blanket for him. And three, on a country road you pull over to help another driver whose car is belching smoke even though you have many appointments. Kern writes, Despite the fact that look out for number one is our culture's mantra, these examples of pro-social behavior are really not so unusual. And quotes New York University psychologist Martin Hoffman who said, Even in our society, the evidence is overwhelming that most people, when confronted with someone in a distress situation, will make a move to help very quickly, if circumstances permit. Alfie Kern continues, Helping may be as dramatic as agreeing to donate a kidney, or as mundane as letting another shop ahead of you in a line. But most of us do it frequently, and started doing it very early in life. Psychologists have argued for years about whether our behavior owes more to the situations in which we find ourselves or to our individual characteristics. Pro-social behavior seems to be related to both. On the situation side, research shows that regardless of your personality, you'll be more likely to come to someone's aid if that person is already known to you or is seen as similar to you. Likewise, if you live in a small town rather than a city, the chances of your agreeing to help increase dramatically. In one experiment, a child stood on a busy street and said to passers-by, I'm lost. Can you call my house? Nearly three-quarters of the adults in small towns did so, as compared with fewer than half in big cities. City people adjust to the constant demands of urban life by reducing their involvement with others, the researchers, psychologists Bib Lantain and John Daly concluded. 
You're also more likely to help someone if no one else is around at the time you hear the cry for help. Lantain and Dali offer three reasons to account for the fact that we're less apt to help when more people are in the area. First, we may get a case of stage fright, fearing to appear foolish if it turns out no help was really necessary. Second, we may conclude from the fact that other people aren't helping that there's really no need for us to intervene either. Finally, the responsibility for doing something is shared by everyone present, so we don't feel a personal obligation to get involved. Now, of course, in our ongoing discussion, we can say that all of those reasons are based on self-cherishing. But even so, they give us some understanding why we may act in that way. And that understanding may well go a long way in helping us to transform the self-cherishing mind. Alfie Kern then goes on to point out that some people are naturally more other-orientated no matter what the situation, like Rachel of the Chick-fil-A incident. He says, People who feel in control of what happens in their lives and who have little need for approval from others are most likely to help others. Similarly, people in a good state of mind, even if only temporarily, are specially inclined to help. Feel good, do good is the general rule, researchers say, regardless of whether you feel good from having a good productive day at the office or, say, from finding money in the street. In one study, people got a phone call from a woman who said the operator had given the, her their number by mistake and she was now out of change at a pay phone. The woman asked if the person who answered would look up a number, call and deliver a message for her. It turned out that people who had unexpectedly received free stationery a few minutes before were more likely to help out the caller. Kern continues, But some investigators aren't satisfied with knowing just when pro-social acts will take place or by whom. Why should we help other people? Why not help number one? That's the rock-bottom question, says University of Massachusetts psychologist Irvin Staub, who's been wrestling with that problem since the mid-1960s. Kern says that it's obvious that we help each other, but our motives may not always be altruistic. And he uses the example of the 17th century political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who believed that we always act out of self-interest. Once, when seen giving money to a beggar and asked why, Hobbes explained he was mostly trying to relieve his own distress at seeing the beggar's suffering. His explanation will ring true for many of us, claims Kern. But is this always what's going on? Helping in order to feel good or to benefit ourselves in some way? Is real altruism a Sunday school myth? Many of us automatically assume so, not because there's good evidence for that belief, but because of our basic and unproved assumptions about human nature. New research describes how we feel when helping someone, but that doesn't mean we came to that person's aid in order to feel good we may have acted out of a simple desire to help. And in fact, there's good evidence for the existence of genuine altruism. He asks us to consider, do we help just to impress others? If looking good were the motive, you'd be more likely to help with others watching, says Latain. His experiments show just the opposite. More evidence comes from an experiment Storb did in 1970. Children who voluntarily shared their candy turned out to have a lower need for approval than those who didn't share. If I'm feeling good about myself, I can respond to the needs of others, Storb explains. 
so helping needn't be motivated by a desire for approval. Kuhn also asks, do we help just to ease our own distress? Sometimes our motivation is undoubtedly like that of Hobbes. But the easiest way to stop feeling bad about someone else's suffering is just to ignore it or leave, says Arizona State University psychologist Nancy Eisenberg. Instead, we often stay and help. And there's no reason to believe we do that just to make ourselves feel better. Kern goes on to state that people who help when they can just pass by aren't motivated by their own discomfort and quotes research done by C. Daniel Batson, a psychologist at the University of Kansas, that shows they describe their feelings as compassionate and sympathetic rather than anxious and apprehensive. Writes Kern, Batson explored this behavior by having students listen to a radio news broadcast about a college senior whose parents had just been killed in a car accident. The students who responded most empathetically to her problem also offered the most help, even though it would have been easy for them to say no and put the whole thing out of their minds. He asks, do we help just to feel pleased with ourselves or to avoid guilt? The obvious way to test this, Batson argues, is to see how we feel after learning that someone else has come to a victim's aid. If we really cared only about patting ourselves on the back or escaping twinges of guilt, we would insist on being the rescuer. But sometimes we are concerned only to make sure that the person who needs help gets it, regardless of who does the helping. And that suggests a truly altruistic motivation. Gern says, Pretend you're one of the subjects in a brand new study of Batson's. You are told that by performing well in a game with numbers, you might be able to help someone else, whose voice you've just heard, avoid mild but unpleasant electric shocks. A little later, you're informed that the person won't be receiving shocks after all. How do you feel? Batson found that many subjects were pleased, even though they personally didn't get the chance to do the good deed. Batson, incidentally, used to assume that we help others primarily to benefit ourselves. But after a decade of studying empathetic response to distress, he's changed his mind. I feel like the bulk of the evidence points in the direction of the existence of altruism, he says. Alfie Kern then asks, if we are naturally selfish, why helping behavior starts so early in life? Between 10 to 14 months, a baby will often seem upset and find comfort from their mother when someone else falls or cries. And even at age two, a kid will comfort another who appears to be in pain. By the time children are three or four, pro-social behavior is common, Kern writes. One group of researchers videotaped 26 three- to five-year-olds during 30 hours of free play and recorded about 1,200 acts of sharing, helping, comforting and cooperating. Children can be selfish and mean too, of course, but there's no reason to think that these characteristics are more common or natural than their pro-social inclinations. He goes on, Psychologist Hoffman points to two studies showing that newborns cry much more intensely at the sound of another baby's cry than at other equally loud noises. That isn't what I'd call empathy, he concedes, but it is evidence of a primitive precursor to it. There's a basic human tendency to be responsive to other pe- persons' needs, not just your own. 
Hoffman rejects biological theories that claim altruism amounts to nothing more than selfish genes trying to preserve themselves by prompting the individual to help relatives who share those genes. But he does believe there may be a biological basis for a disposition to altruism. Natural selection demanded that humans evolve as creatures disposed towards helping, rescuing, protecting others in danger, as well as towards looking out for their own needs. Kern says that according to Hoffman, the inborn mechanism that is the basis for altruism is empathy, which he defines as feeling something more appropriate to someone else's situation than to your own. The way he sees it, empathy becomes increasingly more sophisticated as we grow. First, infants are unable to draw sharp boundaries between themselves and others and sometimes react to another's distress as if they themselves had been hurt. By about 18 months, children can distinguish between me and not me but will still assume that others' feelings will be similar to their own. That's why if Jason sees his mother cry out in pain, he may fetch his bottle to make her feel better. By age two or three, it's possible to understand that others react differently and also to emphasize with more complex emotions. Finally, older children can feel for another person's life condition, understanding that his or her distress may be chronic or recognizing that the distress may result from being part of a class of people who are oppressed. Alfie Kern says that other psychologists believe we are more likely to help others if we both feel their pain and understand the way the world looks at them. During their research, Canadians Dennis Krebs and Christine Russell asked an eight-year-old boy named Adam whether he saw it that way, and he replied, Oh yes, what you do is you forget everything else that's in your head, and then you make your mind into their mind. Then you know how they're feeling, so you know how to help them. People more inclined to take Adam's advice have three defining characteristics according to Staub. They have a positive view of people in general, they're concerned about others' welfare, and they take personal responsibility for how other people are doing. All these, but particularly the first, are affected by the kind of culture one lives in. It's difficult to lead a competitive individualistic life without devaluing others to some extent, he says. So raising children to triumph over others in school and at play is a good way to snuff out their inclination to help. It appears then that caring about others is as much a part of human nature as caring about ourselves, concludes Kuhn, which impulse gets emphasized is a matter of training, according to the experts. We fundamentally have the potential to develop into caring, altruistic people or violent, aggressive people, says Staub. No one will be altruistic if their experiences teach them to be concerned only about themselves. But human connection is intrinsically satisfying if we allow it to be. And with that, we must now part as time is up. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program today to the enlightenment of all living beings. Thank you for joining us today, and please tune in again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.